Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. The world is topsy-turvy and upside down. I've been off the grid for the better part of a week. I think I mentioned last episode that I'd been selling signed copies of Don't Waste Your Pretty, the book that my upcoming TV film is based on. I put them on sale on my website and y'all bought them and y'all kept buying them and y'all and you keep buying them, which I greatly, greatly appreciate your support. Y'all pay good money for your books and you want your books in a timely fashion. So I've been signing until not even my hand hurts, my forearm, but I have been signing books and I have been packing books and I've been getting them out as fast as I can. Books are still on sale at DemetriaLucas.com. I tell you that. Because getting those books out has consumed my life. I put about 500 copies on a USPS truck earlier today. And that was just one batch of the shipment. So I've been out of it. I really didn't do much for Labor Day. I'm in Maryland for a while because California is on fire. And there's a heat wave. And coronavirus is raging. And they shut down the pool in my building and drained it to keep people from gathering. And I was like, I'm living in this fancy downtown high rise. I'm paying for all these amenities and not one of them can I use. Like the gym is closed. All the gathering areas are closed. The pool was open. That was the one bright light. And then they, they drained my damn pool y'all. But I tuned back into the world and the news and like, everything is crazy. Like what is going on? Your president, the occupant in the white house, For reasons that I don't fully understand, he did an interview. Let me see if I can pull it up. The New York Times had a great piece about it. But he did this interview. He did this interview for an upcoming book with Bob Woodward. On February 7th, he admitted that he knew how bad coronavirus was going to be, how bad it was going to hit the United States. He said he knew it could be transmitted through the air, that it was very dangerous, and it would be difficult to contain. He said, quote, this is deadly stuff. You just breathe the air and that's how it passed. But despite that, and I'm reading a piece from the New York Times, despite his understanding of how bad it was going to be, over the next month, he held five large indoor rallies that were attended by thousands of his supporters. You knew there was a deadly virus. You knew how bad it was. And you did that dumb shit anyway. He spent... Like, he spent the rest of February and and a good portion of March saying that the virus was just going to disappear when the seasons changed. On March 19th, and and again, taped interviews with, with Woodward, he said, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. Sir, it's almost 200,000 people dead. Like you wouldn't wear a mask. You encourage other people not to wear a mask at the at the cities and the states that shut down. You rallied for them to open sooner than later. Here it is, September. 40,000 new infections every day. It's deplorable. I don't even know the right word to describe what he's done. Like, how do you just let all those people die? You knew. This isn't really a shocker to have it confirmed. Like we all thought it, we were all like 99.8% sure. Like you knew how bad it was, but you still refused to shut the country down. 
You were hemming and harm with the ventilators. You had the federal government intercepting PPE. You turned mask wearing into politics. You went to war with the Democratic governors and mayors. I didn't want people to panic. Yet every day you're like fear mongering. You sit up here telling people if, if Biden gets elected, then the suburbs will be overrun with, with angry blacks and their liberal friends. No one talks about that shit. Like the only time black people have serious conversations about like overthrowing America and going ham is after another black person gets shot. Like when you mistreat black people, when you, you know, shoot them in the back, shoot them when they're unarmed, shoot them over dumb shit, put a bag over a mentally distressed man in the middle of the street, shit like that. That's when black people start talking about getting guns and going crazy and and tearing up shit. But whenever we say like tear shit up, like it's, it's never like, oh, let's go out to the white people in the suburbs and like go Nat Turner. I would like to remind people, Nat Turner is is always like this image of like, you know, black people going crazy. I would like to point out that Nat Turner was enslaved and people seem shocked that a man who was enslaved did some wild shit in retaliation for slavery. It's not like white people were just sitting around like minding their business, being moral and upstanding. And then Nat Turner went crazy. No, you enslaved him and everyone he knew. And then he did some wild shit in response. Y'all want cities to stop burning? Stop killing black people. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is the occupant in the White House is out here saying, I don't want to create a panic. Meanwhile, his whole election strategy is creating a panic. It's telling white people that if you don't elect me, then the cities are going to be overrun in Joe Biden's America. They keep running these commercials with this footage of like all this chaos and saying this is what it will look like in Joe Biden's America. But they're using footage from Trump's America. He's not even saying like, oh, it'll get worse if I'm not here. It's like, oh, this will happen while using footage of shit that's happening While you're in charge. I haven't seen anybody really pointing out the irony of that. And I don't understand why. Because it's weird. But yeah. Trump knew that coronavirus was terrible and deadly and horrible. And basically did nothing. I didn't want to create a panic. It's a panic, mofo. It's a panic. The Times does a quick summary of just how bad the situation is. Tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. Millions are on the cusp of losing their homes. School systems and elder care networks are struggling to function. The economy is in tatters. That's putting it mildly. It's a shit show. But I digress. That is not the point. The point is, the occupant in the White House, your president, ain't shit. It's a horrible person, which we already knew through millions of examples. This is just the latest one. Another great example were his comments about dead soldiers. He is accused of referring to U.S. soldiers. Just, I want you to be clear, he wasn't talking about soldiers from another army. He was talking about United States soldiers that had been killed in combat. He said they were losers and suckers. That's what he said about people who put their lives on the line in whatever capacity to defend the United States. Now, Trump has denied he said this. The journalists are standing by their stories. If they say he did that shit, he did that shit. It's not even far-fetched. Like, remember what he said about John McCain for being a POW? He publicly called John McCain a loser, which Trump was like, no, I didn't say that. But you did. Like, 
We saw you say it. You're on video saying it. What, how are you going to say you didn't say it when there's video of you saying it? The man just lies. John McCain was a POW. John McCain is considered a war hero. And you called him a loser for being captured. So you said it publicly about John McCain. Is it really that far-fetched that you would say it about other soldiers? I don't think so. However you feel about John McCain as a Republican, one thing that I remember about John McCain is that at the height of that Tea Party nonsense, I remember at some rally, a woman stood up and was talking about President Obama and saying all this crazy stuff against him. McCain, if you'll recall, was running against him. And he was like, nah, like it had gone too far for him. He was like, no, 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 you're wrong. He's a decent family man. He defended him. He didn't want to go down in history as the face of the raging racist. I always respected him for that. Not so much for the Sarah Palin pick. But also, John McCain, you may not respect his politics, but bruh put it on the line. I mean, you can talk about Vietnam being a right or wrong war, but he was a soldier in it. And he got captured. They held him for from 67 until 73. They beat the shit out of him. They tortured him to the point that he wanted to commit suicide. His father was high up. I think an admiral in the Navy. His captors, the North Vietnamese, found out that his father was high ranking. They were willing to let John McCain go to return him to the United States. And John McCain refused because they wouldn't let the other soldiers they captured go as well. He didn't want to leave and leave the other soldiers behind. Again, however you feel about his politics, it's a stand-up dude for that. You got to give credit where it's due. It's called, this is who Trump, who never served, called a loser. Whether the war is right, whether the war is wrong, people put their life on the line for this country. You show them respect. What else is going on in the world? Tayana Taylor and Iman Shumpert, husband and wife, congratulations to them on the birth of their second child. They have another daughter. Cute baby. This baby was also born on the bathroom floor. I don't know why these folks can't ever make it to the hospital. I guess that's just how Tayana is. When the baby decides to come, the baby is there. They're such a cute couple. They look like they have like amazing sex. Like they're having like Obama level sex. Good for them. They make cute babies. Baby Junie is like amazing. It's a really cute child with a bunch of personality. They're really cute. I like them as a couple. I like their little family. I can't wait to see what this baby gives, what energy she's going to give us. Her parents are kind of magnificent. Tamar Braxton, she's been having some issues. I read that her boyfriend got a restraining order against her for domestic violence. I saw the headline. I didn't click on the link. Tamar's going through some things. She was just in the hospital maybe like a month ago for a suicide attempt. I hope she gets the help that she needs. She's, she's clearly spinning out. There's a lot going on with her. I don't like to, to watch people self-destruct. I don't like to see people in pain, and I don't like to see people acting out in pain. So with, uh, with no sarcasm and no malice, because sometimes I say things and people are like, oh, you were being sarcastic. No, I, I really meant like with no sarcasm and no malice. Like I hope whatever's going on with her, like she gets the help that she needs because She's doing a lot. I want her to stop doing a lot. I want her to get some help and do the least. Sit somewhere quietly and sort through her ish. In better news, Gladys Knight and Patti LaBelle are up for the next Versus, which I am goo-gobs excited about. I wasn't that excited about the Monica Brandy Versus. The music was good. 
but their energy was, I said it was awkward on Instagram. People got so upset with me. They're like, Demetria, you're driving a wedge between two black women. I'm like, I'm not driving shit. I'm just telling y'all what I observed. Like, you know, they tried to keep it cute and classy, but Brandy's mouth is reckless. And, and Monica looked like she was holding herself back the whole time. But that was my perspective. Other people were like, you know, Monica was looking stank and looking like she was too good to be there. And I was like, I don't know how y'all read that from the situation. Sometimes just pointing out that people have weird energy or they don't like each other. It doesn't mean you're trying to drive a wedge. Observing a wedge is much different than driving a wedge. The way Brandy did Monica for a good three hours, I would have walked off set somewhere around hour one. I might have cursed her out and walked off set after hour one. People were like, Monica act like she was too good to be there. I was like, Monica was the epitome of grace and class. Even when she was singing, ho, ho. Brandy was like, don't say that. My daughter's here. You're 18 year old. 95% of the people listening are 37 and up. Who are we keeping it clean for? But Miss Patty and Miss Gladys, I'm here for this. I am way too excited. I love Patty LaBelle. My parents played Patty all up through this house while I was growing up. I love all the shouting. I love the shenanigans. I love the hair. I love the outfits. I love Miss Patty and all of her extraness. I love everything about it. I like Gladys Knight. Gladys Knight has a beautiful voice. I know many of her songs. I'm all about this midnight train to Georgia. I love Neither One of Us. Neither One of Us. Farewell, my love. Goodbye. I'm here for it. Best thing that ever happened to me. I'm here for Gladys. I love Miss Gladys. I've seen her perform as well. I went on this Soul Train cruise with my mom. I say all that to say, I love Patti LaBelle. I've seen her perform a couple times. I interviewed her at Essence for like a Walmart activation once. She gave me a patty pie. Amari Hardwick tried to steal the patty pie. He's been on one. After Chadwick passed away, he posted something on the internet and was like, I loved being your competitor. What have you been in that rivals anything that Chadwick Boseman did in his lifetime? I'll wait. Amari Hardwick has never been in anything where I'm like, you got robbed of an Oscar, sir. Chadwick Boseman has done that how many times? I mean, power was, you know, what it was. I watched it faithfully. But I never thought he deserved a nomination for anything. I mean, stop. But again, that's not the point. The point is, I love Patti LaBelle. And I am really, really excited about this Versus. And are they just going to play their music? Because I'm fine with that. If they just want to play their music and then, you know, talk about their songs and give some background, I'm fine with that. But I really want them to sing. I really want this to be like a, a Beanie Man, Bounty Killer type situation. I would like to hear some live vocals. Patty was a lot of my divorce music. My divorce playlist on my own. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. If you asked me to. Love and need and want you, baby. Baby, I. When you've been blessed, I can't even, I can't even hit a note. You are my friend. Over the rainbow. Do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube and look for Patty's performance of Somewhere Over the Rainbow at the Kennedy Center. It is one of the best performances by anybody of anything I've ever seen in my entire life. Bless yourself. I told my mom about this Patty Gladys face-off. She's not impressed. Early on in the pandemic, I was here and Babyface and Teddy Riley 
did their verses. And my mom was excited because she really likes Babyface. Teddy Riley ruined everything for her. I told her about Miss Patty and Miss Gladys, and she was like, hmm. And I was like, no, mommy, they, like, they've changed the verses. They're in studio now. They got the music together. Like, it's much better. And she was like, hmm, we'll see. But I'm going to try to get her to watch, her and my dad. I think they'll enjoy it. Everybody going to be trying to, like, teach their parents how to log on to IG Live. Because this is very, like, I'm the 40 plus, but I only know this music because I grew up in the house with it. But this is really like the 60 plus brigade. This is their, this is their versus. You find out versus is trying to capture all ages now. What else is going on? Oh, trash ass Tory Lanez. He apologized to Meg the Stallion for shooting her. Seemingly, TMZ has the text messages. He said, quote, I know you probably never going to talk to me again. I mean, nigga, you shot me, you think? But I genuinely want you to know I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart. How do you apologize to somebody for shooting them via text? I mean, I don't really know how you properly apologize in general. Like, even face-to-face. I'm sorry I shot you. Like, it just, it just, it just doesn't have the right ring to it. I don't know if there's a proper apology after you shoot somebody. But, you know, at least face-to-face you're trying. But then again, if you shot me, I would probably never be in the same room with you again. So the face-to-face thing could be difficult. Maybe a FaceTime? But then if you called, I'm probably not going to answer. Maybe send a video. I don't know. But I feel like a text message, which I was surprised it went through. Because I'm like, she ain't block you, dude? So many questions. Tory Lanez continues this text. He says, I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart. His reason for shooting her, or for whatever he's apologizing in this text, allegedly for shooting her, he says, I was just too drunk. Nigga. Did you really just blame it on alcohol? You blame shooting a woman in her feet because you drank too much. I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, I just, I, I just, the niggotry of it all. I just, I don't know what to say to that. Like, you apologize via text to someone like, when you when you eat their Chipotle leftovers, which is a really serious offense. Like, I remember getting into a really big argument with Redacted because he ate my Chipotle. Like, I was the highest level of pissivity when he ate my Chipotle. I didn't even have chicken. He wasn't a vegetarian. My mom was vegetarian. He ate that shit. I'm, st- I'm letting it go. But he, he also adds, he says, nonetheless... Shit should never have happened, and I can't change what I did. I just feel horrible. Man, fuck your feelings. You ain't the one that got shot. I, 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 I don't even know what to say to that. Like, I just, I've said all I'm going to say. Nigga and niggatry. Next topic. Speaking of people asking for forgiveness, John Gray, the cheating pastor, I was going to talk about this last week and I just, I had nothing else to add. I talked about John Gray two weeks ago being caught cheating again. Another emotional affair. The woman even said, she said, we didn't meet. He just, you know, dragged his wife to me and and asked me to send him nude pictures and complained that his child was eating pizza for dinner every night. And meanwhile, was trying to do a whole barbecue for this woman, including brisket. I didn't have anything else to add. Like last week, he'd already done the sermon. And basically, I was like, yo, he's a whole hoe. But he did do a sermon. I'm acknowledging that he did a sermon. I'm acknowledging that he apologized to his wife for either cheating or or getting caught cheating. I I don't know. 
This time, he was up in the pulpit alone. It's just a sorry state of affairs when a whole husband is for the streets. Like, you're a husband. You're somebody's daddy. Like, you should be for the house, the home, the residence, the domicile, sukasa, the porch, the family room, the living room, the patio, the basement, the recliner, the couch. The streets are for single people. Married people need to get indoors and be with their spouses and families and let the single people be out in the wild together. Sir is out here fucking up the ecosystem. A whole single husband out here trying to fly somebody on a private jet to Cabo in the middle of a goddamn global pandemic. I just... A good sis over at the Grio. She wrote this piece about John Gray. She lit his ass up. The, uh, the article was entitled, The Only Thing Relentless About Pastor John Gray Is Him Embarrassing His Wife. The opening sentence was, quote, I find Pastor John Gray to be an abhorrent example of a man of God and a gutter trash example of a husband. Oh, she was just getting warm. That, that was just a warm up. She, she, she not really hot yet. I'll give you hot. Quote, the irony is not lost upon me that the same man who delivered a sermon to the black women of his church, advising them to, quote, not to walk in the spirit of girlfriend, can't seem to curb his affinity for an abundance of side chicks. The same man who cited Proverbs 18.22, quote, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, end quote, has repeatedly and publicly embarrassed his wife, all for the benefit of his own ego. This refusal to take responsibility is a clear indication that John Gray is not a good husband and he should not be the leader of any church. How anyone reasonably expects John Gray to minister to his church is beyond me. This piece is written by Shayna Pencock. She's the social media director of the GRIO. just want to make sure I acknowledge her words and her name. Because sis, this is a filthy read. Please read this full article on the GRIO. I gave you the title so you can go search it for yourself. Once again, the only thing relentless about Pastor John Gray is him embarrassing his wife. That's the title. I hope John Gray, somebody sent him that piece. Andrina Thomas, she's a Facebook friend of mine. She wrote, a, she wrote a nice post about John Gray. She's a Christian woman. She said, quote, John Gray is a prime example of why I say the church has failed us women by making us think marriage and a good man was a reward for purity and abstinence. When are men going to be held accountable for their duplicity? When are us women going to be allowed to be human? Men just like John Gray do the opposite of what they tell us women to do, preach another apology sermon for cheating on his wife again, all while claiming to be human and asking for grace. He out here talking about women not being blessed or whatever because they're walking in the spirit of girlfriend and not a wife, all the while he out here walking in the spirit of a whore and cheater. Well, I just. I have nothing to add. I, there's, I, there's nothing else to say. Just, yeah. I hope, I hope uh, Reverend Gray can, can get himself together. Out here making a mockery of himself and his marriage and the church. Like, looking crazy out here, bruh. Dr. Dre and his wife, soon to be ex-wife. We talked about this, I think, when the announcement first came. That uh, the, his wife had filed for divorce after 24 years of marriage. It's important to note, Dre and his wife, 
because they have been married for 24 years in a community property state, no less, are worth together approximately $800 million. People keep saying like, oh, she's trying to take Dre's money. I feel like the people who say that don't fundamentally understand the binding contract that is a marriage license. If you just want to keep your money as your money, don't get married and certainly don't stay for 24 years. That's y'all's money. But the the news story this week is Dr. Dre's wife is seeking $2 million a month in temporary alimony while they settle this divorce. People keep leaving out the part that it's temporary alimony. The breakdown of her expenses, she says laundry and cleaning are $10,000 a month. Clothes are $135,000 a month. Education, $60,000 a month. Ma'am, what are you learning? Her entertainment is $900,000 a month. If the borders were open, I could see how that could happen. Charitable contributions, $125,000 a month. That makes sense to me. You can eat, like giving money away is easy. Mortgage, $100,000 a month. I don't know what their houses situations are. Okay, this is the one that got me. The telephone, cell phone, and email is $20,000 a month. Now, I thought email was free. Now, maybe they got like some special servers or something. I don't know. But the telephone, they're in their 50s. They still got a landline? It's really the cell phone that would really get you. But I don't understand how any of this is $20,000 a month. And this is in USD, just to be clear. Like USD dollars, dineros, $20,000. Somebody on IG said $20,000. She better have Jesus on the main line. I laughed so hard I cried when I read that shit. And I was like, I mean, that would explain. In her filings, Nicole says that she wants all this money because Dre has been controlling the money and he's denying her right to use the American Express black card, among other things. He's, they're separating and he's trying to claim all the money as his. Even though she has some rightful claims to a good chunk of this money, he says there's a prenup. She says that she signed one at one point, but he tore it up. So there is no prenup. She said he did this in the second or third year of marriage. So there is no prenup. I don't know. But even with a prenup, 24 years of marriage in a community property state, 800 million on the line. Say she's not entitled to half. She should at least take a third. Come on. A fourth? Run that woman a good 250 mil. You could pay to make this problem go away. Cut the check. Cut the check. End this shit, y'all. Y'all got all this money? Cut the check. Get that woman 250 mil, a couple houses, a couple cars. She'll be on her way. This doesn't have to play out this way. He's being petty. Men go crazy when you leave them, especially when they treat you bad. And when you leave, because she is accusing him of domestic violence as well, which he's publicly known to have beat a couple other women. So, oh, he just beat those two, but he stopped beating women when he got married? Yeah. Maybe you told me he had intensive therapy along the way. I'd be willing to hear you out. But, like, you publicly beat D. Barnes. You beat the shit out of Michelle A. Not really a stretch to be like, oh, you beat your wife? Likely. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt here. But run this woman her check. Let her go peacefully. I'm just saying. So last but certainly not least, we need to discuss this professor at George Washington University, Professor Jessica Krug. She's an African-American studies professor. She's also an activist, very outspoken, allegedly black woman. At least that's what she was telling people. But then... Last week, she wrote a piece for Medium that was seemingly out of the blue. Not so much because somebody was about to blow up her spot. But she said that, quote, 
to an escalating degree over my adult life. I have eschewed my lived experience as a white Jewish child in suburban Kansas City under very assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. That's a very long-winded way of saying I'm a white girl from Kansas City and I've been pretending to be black. She said that she took on various identities. First, she said that she was North African. Then she said she was U.S. black. And then she said I was Caribbean-rooted Bronx blackness. Man was out here trying on different identities of blackness like they were wigs. I feel like a bob today. No, I feel like a fro today. Oh, no, I want some braids today. Like, ma'am, just out here trying on blackness. It's a costume. Krug sometimes went by the name Jessica La Bombalera. And as late as June, there's video of her speaking at a New York City public hearing on police brutality. She introduces herself as Jessica Bombalera, which, is that a popular name? Amongst our our Afro-Latina friends, I've never heard it. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I haven't heard it. But she says, I'm here in El Barrio, East Harlem. You probably haven't heard about it because you sold my fucking neighborhood to developers and gentrifiers. That's how she introduced herself. A few moments later, she says, and this is from the New York Times as well. She said, I want to call out all these white New Yorkers who waited four hours with us to be able to speak and then did not yield their time for black and brown indigenous New Yorkers. Ma'am, you are neither black, you are neither brown, and you are not indigenous to New York. You're from fucking Kansas. And you're white. I just, she sounds crazy. So after this story came out, people came out the woodwork and was like, yeah, I've met her and she's nuts. People were like posting screenshots from text conversations. She was saying that her whole family was black. She said that her mother was a sex worker who was raped by a white man, and that's why she's the complexion that she is. Students in her class talked about how she was very confrontational with them. If they weren't from like an urban environment or have a hard knock life story, she would question the authenticity of their blackness, which I'm like, you a whole white woman from Kansas out here questioning authentic blackness of actual black people, really? And you were somebody's professor doing that? I saw a video of her speaking. I'm like, what black person do y'all know that sounded like that? But the thing is, there were a lot of people who did question whether she should be in black spaces. And they were like, I really don't think this woman is black. Like the woman who was about to out her was not the first. Another woman posted screenshots and she was like, you know, I approached her about this whole blackness thing. And then she got all upset about her mother being a sex worker and her father raping and then me referring to the man as her father. And it just derailed the whole conversation. And the woman was saying, she was like, I feel like she's full of shit, but, you know, I don't know where to go with this. She had a neighbor who was like, yeah, she's out of her fucking mind. She was like, somebody stole my home delivery food. And I asked the, our landlord to be like, hey, could you check the video? Because my food got delivered and then now my food's not here. And the landlord was like, hey, do you have like beef with this chick? Because she stole your food and threw it in the trash. And I think she did it more than once. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with this lady? You're out here acting like a mad woman. Like, is this your interpretation of, of blackness? Or is this like you're crazy showing up? Like, I don't, I don't know. But she says in the piece that she's like, you know, clearly I have mental health issues, which I felt weird about. I was like, I appreciate you acknowledging But there are a lot of people that have mental health issues and they don't go pretending to be a race that they are not. So, yeah. But she does say this. She says mental health issues can never 
will never, neither explain nor justify, neither condone nor excuse that in spite of knowing and regularly critiquing any and every non-Black person who appropriates from Black people, my false identity was crafted entirely from the fabric of Black lives. Yeah. So I wanted to speak with someone who works in this space. One, I haven't been able to keep up with the story in the way that I want to. And two, like, I just don't get it. Like, I get the idea of, like, why a black person want to pass as white. I don't respect it, but I get it. Like, you want access to the privileges and you don't want to deal with the sometimes, for lack of a better word, burden of blackness. I don't really get why someone with privilege would want to pass as black. Like, what do you gain from this? I don't, I can't really make sense of it. Ebony Janice Moore, she is a womanist, a scholar, an author, an activist doing community organizing work, most specifically around Black women's body ownership as a justice issue. She is the founder of the Free People Project. She's also the founder of Black Girl Mixtape, a multi-platform safe think space centering the intellectual authority of Black women in the form of a lecture series, a podcast, and an online learning institute led by Black women scholars. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and people with sense, however you identify, you're all welcome as long as you can think properly. Doesn't mean agree. That means just think. Everybody doesn't. It's hard to come by sometimes. But all of y'all, please welcome Ebony Janice to Ratchet and Respectable. Yes, hello. Hi, Ebony Janice. This is Demetria. Hi, Demetria. How are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. And we're going to discuss something that I have a very limited scope about. So, you know, we, we decided we were going to talk about about Jessica Krug, this professor at GW, an African-American studies professor, no less, who's been, I don't know if passing is the right word. I mean, that's what we usually say for Black folks who are presenting as white. But I don't know if that's the appropriate term for white people who present as Black. Like, is that... Is that what we call it, passing, or is it something else? I don't think we really have a language for it, honestly. I think it's such a, it's not new, but it's such a new thing for us to really be discussing that I don't think we really have a language for it. But that is what she was doing socially. She was socially, and, you know, she was socially passing as black or as Afro-Latina. Like, she was getting by, you know, with certain groups of people as being black or Afro-Latina. And, and so, look, like, I'm black. I love being black. Like, I get why people want to be down, why they want to hang out with the blacks. Like, I get it. You know, we're dope. But I, I'm confused here on, like, what the benefit is to a white woman from Kansas passing herself as in various forms. Like, you know, she said that she tried out, like, some, some North African blackness. And then, like, you're just trying on different people. What do you make of why she would want to do something like this? I think, a, I think a couple things. I think this feels so duplicitous, but we see it on our social media feeds every day, honestly. Maybe the people, maybe these women, um, you know, these white women black fishing, mm-hmm. are not going as far as what Jessica Krug has done. But they are living their lives as black women as much as they can possibly get away with. But the other thing that I'm thinking about is actually something that I saw. Ugh, I wish I pulled it up before we got. I saw on Facebook. I know it was Amber Johnson, Professor Amber Johnson. 
says something like being light skinned and unattractive gets you more social capital than being white and unattractive. So that for me really kind of pushed me in the chest like, ooh, is it is there something to being an unattractive white woman and deciding to really just show up in all the privilege that you know you have and just playing in blackness? knowing that you can get away with it because then from what we know about her behavior is that she, you know, anybody that tried to suggest that her behavior was ever off or she would say, she would basically police their blackness. You're not, you've assimilated. That's the reason why you think this is problematic. You're just not as black as I am, right? I do think that there could be some of that, like what does it look like to have social capital as a light-skinned, unattractive person because of colorism and not have that same capital as, white unattractive person and I also want to go there because what that made me think about was all of the black men that I have seen having to come out saying they were a part of this problem that they upheld her anytime anybody tried to you know ask them any questions about her suggest that she very possibly shouldn't be on a certain panel or have a certain access to a certain platform that they were complicit because they took up for her and I think really that's the conversation that I'm interested in having is why is black women's identity so up for grabs to, to the point that even black men will participate in it. I mean, well, sis, the recorder is rolling, so let's let's have the conversation. There's much to be said. Because my next question for you is going to be, in what ways are black people complicit in what she did? And I was going to point out, like, obviously the colorism thing, but also, you know... And I have these conversations all the time and I'm, I, I sometimes I'm on the right side of it. Sometimes I'm on the wrong side of it. But as black folk, we tend to uphold until recently this one drop rule where it's like if, if you have like a, a, a half black grandparent, then we're like, OK, well, you're black. You can come to the cookout. Mm-hmm. Is this part of what happens when you have that rule? It's like we leave the gate open for everybody and then. Every once in a while, you get somebody like this woman or, or the, the influencers who blackfish or Rachel Dozel yeah. who slips in. I think that a couple things. I, I would actually like to give like my thoughts on a brief possible history lesson for how this happened, particularly as it pertains to black women. Please do. And so I think about this article that Angela Davis wrote years ago about the role of the black woman in the slave community. And um, she references the Moynihan Report, which which really tries to create this um, this matriarch story. You know that that black women are just you know really reinforces this idea that black women had a certain kind of power in the slave community, <laughs> and um, and it really this matriarch role really dehumanizes black women, and so it creates this trope that whenever it manifests in any way, it's just reinforced. So. So I want to go there by saying that I think that because black women really do hold the culture, yeah, that's the period at the end of that sentence, because black women really do hold our culture together, if you ever are around black women at all, you get, you get kind of, you get baby, like, come here, baby, or you get, um, you get access to that auntie, mama, grandma, you know, kind of figure Mm -hmm. automatically, like, just, just by proximity. And so as a result of that, it feels then because we hold the culture in those roles that that culture then or those behaviors are up for grabs. So I think that's how a white woman could be like, I have access to this. I'm going to show up and just, you know, behave in this way. This isn't, this doesn't just belong to black women. This is the way that I was raised. This is, um, you know, I can think about Aquafina, right? I was raised around black people. 
so that's the reason why I talk like this. I was, and, and you think that then the culture, because of that, that you just have access to it, it's, it's yours because you grew up around it or because you um, are learning in community with it or because you went to school with it or, for you know, whatever, whatever. But it's that matriarch piece. I'm trying not to throw black men under the bus because that's not what I'm doing. But I think it's easy then for black men, men, men to participate in that as well because of that they're so used to to the trope about black women and our hardness. So, like, anytime a, anytime a black woman shows up and she's being very hard or aggressive the way that Jessica Krug apparently behaves on a regular basis, it's easy for them to look at that and say, oh, she was, she was clearly a black woman. Like, just thinking through that, thinking through the role of black women over time and how we have been forced in many ways into that matriarch role. And, and even any, so anything we do comes across as that. So it feels like if, as long as you have proximity to that, to that role, then you had access to that to that culture. And if you had access to that culture, then you could take from it as much as you wanted to. And no one could really question you because, again, because you had access to it. And I and I think that I wanted to point out that matriarch piece, too, because I think that we can, it's what you said, it's that one-drop rule. We can be so inclusive, and black women specifically, we can be so, um, we can care so much for the community in so many ways that it makes it easy for people to feel like, well, I'm accepted here in ways that maybe they might not feel accepted in their own community. So I think it's just maybe kind of troubling some of that that could be helpful to think about how it's possible for her to prove up in. I have two thoughts about what you just said. One of them is, I don't know another word to describe it, but the white privilege of thinking that because you have proximity to something that you can just take it on and own it. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I brought up Aquafina because that very often you hear people, you know, like that, say, well, I grew up around black people. You don't very often hear black people do the same thing. You don't hear black people saying, well, I grew up this way, so I can just say and do whatever I want to say, right? Like, using the types of slurs in different communities. We are black, so clearly we grew up for the most part in other, around other groups of people, and we just don't do that. So there definitely is an element of white privilege and or proximity to whiteness that makes you feel like you can have access or you, can, you have the privilege to do with other people's culture whatever you want to do with it. And then the other thing was, you mentioned something about, like, sometimes the hardness perceived stereotypical, real, whatever, but sometimes the hardness of Black women and the stories that I've been reading about Jessica, she sounds wild sometimes. Like, she's she can be very aggressive. Students from her class were saying that, you know, she would tell them that they weren't Black enough. She was very confrontational. So it's very strange to me that, like, she was presenting this aggressiveness that is a stereotype of Black womanhood. Kind of what you're hinting at or hinting around. I know why you don't want to go there because I don't want to do it either. Anytime black women are any any way critical of black men, it becomes like a, you hate black men and that's why you're all these other things. But when you're not right, you're not right. So I feel okay saying it. But I feel like some of the things that she was accepted for and even liked for are things that if a black woman did that, we'd be called everything but a child of God. Yeah, it definitely is a minstrel show that she's been putting on. She took the most stereotypical elements of everything Black and everything Afro-Latina and put it into one person and then and then doubled up on it because of that white privilege. I don't care if she was pretending to be Black. She was still very conscious of the fact that she was white, right? So there was, there was like uh, this... this this white privilege that was like, I'm going to take all these things that I either enjoy, you know, about blackness or Afro-Latina culture, and I'm going to, and I'm going to take it to the whole other level because 
that's the thing. When I watch different videos of her speaking or read different things that she, you know, said, I thought, do black women, black women don't perform their blackness in this way. And, and this is from a black woman who identifies as a, you know, like, like, like my blackness is a central part of my identity. I love being black. If I get another chance to come back in another form, please sign me up to be black again, right? I, like, I love being a black woman. So, so my blackness is very important to me, and yet I still don't perform my blackness in the way that Jessica Krug's behavior always to me, like, as I as I looked at the things that, you know, the things that I've been reading, the things that I've been seeing hers, and it, it, it always, it, it just looks like a performance. And I'm just wondering why the people in her community, particularly the black men, um, weren't able to look at that and see that this is such an extreme performance of blackness that there just wasn't enough questioning about that. And I and I say that because, like I said, I have seen a lot of black men take ownership of their complicit nature in this experience, right? Like how they participated, how they um, silenced other black women as a result of their relationship with Jessica Crow. And it feels like they need to do some healing around what it is that they actually think about black women and our behavior. I also saw these two black women on a panel with Jessica Krug, and both of those black women literally were clear that Jessica Krug was out of order and should not have been there. I mean, they, you could see their faces. Their faces will be memes for generations to come because they're literally looking at her like, ma'am, how, how did you get here? Nobody's supposed to be here. And so I think I'm just thinking about all the black women who have been suspicious of her for years and how all these black women and, and Afro-Latino women are coming out talking about how any time that they did question her, you know, she she targeted them in many ways. She was violent towards them in many ways. She threatened them in, in many ways. And, and so, yeah, I just think that it is important for us to, you know, for not for us, well, but for black men specifically, you know, just calling it out to really question those times when black women. We have whole campaigns called Listen to Black Women yeah. for a reason. It's not... But, you know, obviously we're saying listen to black women because people don't be listening to black women. When you have a group of sisters, whether it be one or two or ten, saying something is awry here, and your, and your consistent decision to not listen to one or two or a group of black women saying there's a problem here, that means that you have not been the woke brother that you claimed yourself to be, and you need to, you know, process that inherent, what is it? What is it you're possibly leaning towards your own privilege for lighter skin people, that colorism, that, you know, whatever it is, to not believe black women when they say something is strange here. Something is amiss. So I've seen people... And they, they said the same, same thing about Rachel Dozell. They were like, okay, so this woman presented as black, but she was down for the black cause. She was an activist. She was, you know, teaching African-American studies. She was woke. She's about equity, equality, black rights, whole nine yards. Is it really that big of a deal that, that she's passing as black? She's doing more for black people than some black people. So it doesn't really matter. It absolutely matters. Likely more than two reasons, but for the two reasons that I point out. Number one... As a black woman, it's very offensive to me that somebody could put on my identity as a costume. That so yes, it matters. I don't care if she marched in Selma pretending to be a black woman. She is not a black woman, and that is offensive. And the idea that black women to have ownership of ourselves is a justice issue, right? When we when we come out talking about other people black fishing, um, a particular group of sisters who are famous for loving black men and loving black women's aesthetics, they're 
and and when black women you know speak out about the particular group of famous sisters who love black men and love black women's aesthetics but very clearly hate black women the the idea that there's something wrong with us that we're just haters somebody can put on black women's aesthetic put on our identity and that's acceptable and we're just not supposed to say anything so so yes it's a problem it doesn't matter what good she did as her you know, exaggerated black self. She was not a black woman, and therefore it was violent. Number two, it's a problem because of all of the space that she took up as a fake black woman, right? There are people who missed out on opportunities that they absolutely deserved and were worthy of, and the grief that that caused as a result, that caused then and all these very possibly years later finding out that that scholarship or that grant or that position that you didn't get because this other, you know, alleged black woman took up that role. And so now having to process that grief all over again all these years later. And so when white when white people, period, but when people with proximity to whiteness take up space, just in general, it, it can become violent because somebody's voice is not being heard. So it's a whole other level of violence when you find out that it was a white person pretending to be you know, your own identity, like your identity was, you know, a costume. And so to not understand the levels of that kind of violence is, it, it feels to me as like uh, maybe maybe we should all just be silent for a while. And, and actually listen to black women. Listen to black women. I mean, I feel like that's the theme of the episode. I might just title it that, Listen to Black Women. You know what, so Demetria, before we go, like, just even to lean into that, Listen to Black Women, you know, I think that a Jessica Krug very likely wouldn't have gotten away with it <laughs> for so long if people actually listened to black women. Not just listen to the black women who are suspicious of her, is this how black women sound really to you? Like, like if you really have been listening to black women, is this the, is, is this really, does this really sound like a black woman to you? Really? Like how, I mean, we didn't even talk about like the surface of what it looks like to just look at her, to listen, you know, like on the surface, do you know anybody like this? She was, she was extreme. Do you know, do you even know any black women this way? So it just even feels like, have y'all really been listening to black music, to, to black women? I was about to quote Jay-Z. I, I'm just confused about how she passed for so long, just even on the circuit. Not even going deep into, like, the, you know, psychology of how you get there, but just on the surface, like, you didn't just look at her and know? Beyond what she did, I think that's probably the scariest part to me. I don't know anyone, like, at college, grad school, high school, junior high school, grown-up years. I don't know anyone who looks like that or acts like that. Like, a combination of both. Even though I do have very, very, couldn't even pass for white, light friends, right, that are either mixed or, you know, but, but grew up, you know, culturally black. Um, because maybe their mom was black or their dad was black, whatever. But, but look white. They don't even act like that. There is a, there is a, and maybe that's a conversation for another day for a light-skinned person to talk about, um, to talk about their own personal journey as a black person in that body, having to figure out what it looks like to still be identified as black and being considered a part of the culture. And so I've, I've just talked to another, enough light-skinned people who have, you know, been on a healing journey around their own black identity enough to know that even that for me is like, Okay, you might not look black, but there is a behavior as a 
as a light-skinned person intending to, you know, be a part of this community, that still just feels a little off with this woman. That is the part that's interesting to me the most, I think. With light-skinned Black people and biracial Black people who are raised around Black people, like, the, the common thing is, well, one, they're actually yeah. Black, but they have, like, a Black community... Mm-hmm. So they're not performing blackness; they're just being mm-hmm. black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's um. Yeah. The other thing I was gonna say is like it's kind of crazy to me. I'd like to think that that because of our proximity to black men, that many of them actually do at least physically see us or hear us mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. And then you have instances like a woman like this, like being able to pass for so long and then being defended so so adamantly by so many black men and it's like do you really see black women do you really hear black women at all i'm not so yeah. sure and that's what really troubles me probably above everything else in this story i do think that the main thing that i would like for people to really one of the main things that i would like for people to really think about is how black women's identities are always up for grabs just in general. Black women, uh, Dolores Williams, she writes in Sisters of the Wilderness, she writes about um, black women being the only living, the only human who have been used for both reproduction and labor um, as a result of child slavery. Mm. So black women, black women have a very unique um, reality where on this continent, on this soil, we have never belonged to ourselves, ever. And so just that very simple piece is like, of course your aesthetic, your tone of voice, of course your um, ideas and your identity is up for grabs. You don't belong to yourself, and you never have. So I think that's what that very unique place that we exist in as black women makes it so easy for a you know, a dozal or a, you know, Krug or dashing ancestor to really, you know, take what they desire and 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 have multitudes, you know, show up and defend them because it's easy to throw black women away once you get what you want from them. It's historically our relationship with this with this is to take what you need from black women and then to throw them away. And the unfortunate piece about that is that as much as I love black women, black men to the point that I don't even know what to do with myself without them, they have been historically consistent in that. I mean, we could just read books to prove that. That's not an opinion. So. Yeah. This is so heavy and kind of scary, too. But thank you for, for yeah. dipping our Listen toe to in the water. Listen to black women. That's the end conclusion. Well, at least the people listening to this podcast, we know they're listening to Black women. That's the start. Thank you so much, Ebony Janice. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. She was great. I mean, this is an, an ongoing conversation. There are lecture series and summits fully dedicated to each of the issues that we tap danced on today. I, I wish we had way more time to delve in deeper, but I appreciate that we got a chance to scratch the surface and... And talk about some of these issues. Like, I mean, the last couple episodes, we've been having some uncomfortable conversations about colorism and texturism and the role that Black men can play in some of this stuff. It's, it's touchy, it's painful, it's hurtful, but it's necessary. 
Like if we don't talk about these things, then we can never deal with them. We can never solve or heal from them. So I love these conversations. They get sticky and they get messy, but I think they're worthwhile. So that is today's episode. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. Thank you again to Ebony Janice Moore from the Free People Project. Appreciate your insight. Appreciate you. If you liked what you heard this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. Or if during the week you would like to have some ratchet and respectable in your life, please follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Demetria L. Lucas. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I am signing copies of my second book, Don't Waste Your Pretty, which my upcoming film on TV One is based on. So if you would like a signed copy of my book, you can get them on the website for now. They won't be up forever. DemetriaLLucas.com for a signed copy. One more thing. A couple weeks ago, I teamed up with Kalila from Mess in a Bottle. We've been friends forever. She's one of my Maryland homies. Love her to death. We teamed up to do a limited edition collection for my hashtag, Don't Waste Your WAP. If you're interested in a Don't Waste Your WAP t-shirt or sweatshirt, we have both now. You can order either one from messinabottle.com. Those will be around for maybe another week or so. Make sure you get a shirt. I have a gallery at the top of my Instagram page of all the women who bought the shirts and have been tagging me in their pictures. If you have a shirt, please post a picture of yourself. Tag me in it. I would love to see you. I'd love to see the readers and the listeners. I would love to post you in my gallery. And if you have a signed copy of Don't Waste Your Pretty, please share with the group. Post a picture. Tag me in the picture. I would love to see you with your book. So that's that. And we'll talk next week. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>